0: It's been almost 30 years, it's hard to believe how time passes so quickly, but almost 30 years ago across the street as I was about to um, go back to class to teach a course in Baptist Heritage, I think it was, after chapel many folks didn't leave and they stayed. You see, they had heard about a revival that had begun in Brownwood, Howard Payne University. This, the year is 1995. It's winter time in January. And the influence of that revival had spread to other churches and universities and seminaries. And our students and faculty remained to pray and to confess sin and to also experience something of a renewal that day. You see, for seven weeks at Coggan Avenue Baptist Church, they had been focusing on prayer and discipleship, and at the same time, Howard Payne students who had returned for the beginning of that semester had begun to hold spontaneous prayer meetings. This is January 1995. And after the morning chapel, on the 22nd, students remained in the chapel and began to confess their sin and to pray. 18 conversions came out of that immediately and four commitments to ministry. And the revival lasted a couple of months. It spread to about 100 universities and seminaries and numerous churches. Now that may sound familiar because we've had a similar experience this past winter. In February, you know about the quote, Asbury revival and Wilmore, Kentucky. In February, on Wednesday the 8th, there was a spontaneous prayer meeting in Hughes Auditorium after chapel, and it continued nonstop, 24 hours a day for two weeks, singing and praying and confessing sin. And in the course of that two two months, between 50 and 70,000 people came from all over the country and joined in this. at least 200, maybe 260 colleges, universities, and seminaries. And on TikTok, they had 63 million views. It's known as the Asbury Revival. Well, folks, there have been about seven or eight of those in the past 120 years. The most notable was in 1970. We call these revivals, and then people begin to ask questions, well, was it really revival or not? I'm going to say this again. You've heard me say it before. When this nation experiences a revival, we will know it. And we will not ask the question, was that revival or not? I, I don't question that there was renewal that went on during these events. And I don't really have a problem with labeling it, if you will, revival. But it's not sustainable. There's a difference between what we have experienced at Asbury and Southwestern and Brownwood as laudable as those efforts were, and as sincere as the students and faculty were. There's a difference between that and sustainable revival. If you want to see sustainable revival, you look at Evan Roberts. And you've heard me use this illustration before because it's appropriate. The Welsh revival of 1904 began late 1903, lasted actually into 1905. It was 14 months long an ex-coal miner and blacksmith who had committed himself as a candidate for the Presbyterian ministry in Loughor, Wales, and Glamorganshire. He was 26 years old, but ever since he had turned a teenager, ever since the age of 13, for 13 years, he had been praying earnestly, diligently for revival. And he had some friends that joined him in that effort as well. And in Mariah Chapel in 1904, as he preached then, Quote, revival broke out and it lasted for 14 months. It spread throughout Wales. Coal miners, as they came out of the mines, instead of going back home for their dinner, went to chapel to pray. It was amazing. Over 100,000 converted and then it spread to England and to Scotland and to Scandinavia, to the continent of Europe, and then into Africa and Latin America. The Welsh revival. That was sustainable Revival. What's the difference? I think one is, it's not just spontaneous prayer, and it's not just something that spontaneously breaks out, although that's a part of sustainable revival. We see that in the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and all of the other seven that we've had in this nation since the late 1700s. But there is always a long season of earnest prayer that precedes it. And prayer that God's will will be accomplished in renewing and reviving the people. There's also, I think, a prayer for committed workers to follow up, for there must be those that are committed to discipleship, to close the back door when folks enter the front door. And then there is also a commitment to proclaim the gospel forthrightly, straightforwardly, and to call for repentance and confession of sin and to pray that the Holy Spirit will author it and the Holy Spirit will descend upon the people. Jesus faces a very similar situation in Matthew's gospel. He has preached and he has taught. The beginning of the, the gospel there in chapters 5 through 7, we see his preaching the kingdom ethic and the Sermon on the Mount. That's that's part of his ministry. And then chapters 8 and 9, we see the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of healing, exorcism, casting out demons, controlling the elements, stilling the storm, cleansing lepers. We see the miraculous ministry of Jesus. And as we come to the end of that ninth chapter, we come to today's text All of these things you see that have been fulfilled in chapters 5 through 9, three times in those chapters, chapter 5, 7, and 8, it is declared forthrightly that he is fulfilling Scripture. He is fulfilling the law and the prophets completely. His fame has grown. Large crowds, multitudes have begun to follow him. His name has become a byword. Not only in Galilee, but Judea and Jerusalem, and the region beyond the Jordan, and into Phoenicia, And he's begun to gather a small group of disciples, beginning with Peter and Andrew, and James and John, Philip and Nathaniel, and probably also, well, certainly Matthew by this time. Enumerate them up to this point, there are only seven, but we know that there are others that have begun to gather around him. He is pursued by the scribes and the Pharisees who have become jealous of his popularity. They have questions about why his disciples don't fast and follow the purity codes. He dares to forgive sin before he heals a paralytic. And then we come to this passage today where he begins what many scholars will call the second discourse in the book of Matthew. And it is the mission discourse where he commissions the 12 to go on kingdom mission particularly in this case, to Galilee. And we come then to the end of chapter 9, where in verse number 35, it says this. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and <clears throat> every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers, they are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. In this passage, we see very clearly, once again, as we did last week, that Jesus and God care beyond measure. God cares for you, he cares for me beyond anything that we can measure. We also see that God's harvest is ready. It's plenteous, but of course the workers are what? Few, even now. And we also see today, and it's pertinent today, that he promises basically here that God will send workers to the harvest when he commands us to pray. God cares for us, God cares for you. And if you're watching this morning, God cares for you beyond measure, more than anything that you could ever imagine. You know, last year, last week in John, the fourth chapter, we, we made the observation as he spoke, Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman that God loves beyond bounds, beyond boundaries. That was the extent of his love. In the passage today, we see the depth of his love. We see how much he cares Seeing the people, you know, that's a very simple phrase, but there's a lot in that. Jesus didn't just look at the people. He didn't just behold them. He didn't just look at them. He didn't just notice them. He didn't see them as a spectator watching the crowds. Those are different words that are used in the Koine Greek for seeing, but that's not the word that is used here. The word that is used here means that he looked intently at them and he observed from experience. You see, he saw with his mind as well as with his eyes. He was God incarnate who had walked with these people and he continued to walk with them day by day. This wasn't in the temple. It wasn't in the synagogue, although he did go to the temple and he taught and he preached in the synagogues. But day by day, he walked with them and he saw them from experience. The form of the verb means that he was fully aware. He was fully mindful of every need that they had. And he saw the hope in their desperate eyes. Because you see, that was his experience too. He had grown up with them. He not just looked at the people, but he saw them. And he saw not just a crowd, but he saw individuals that were desperately in need of help and hope. And he felt compassion And the word compassion here isn't just that he had a feeling of passion. It wasn't just that he pitied them. It wasn't just that he had concern for them. It wasn't just that he empathized with them, or even that he, more than that, sympathized with him. Once again, a unique word is used here for his compassion. It's a word that is used in the New Testament and the synoptics only for Jesus It's his godly, merciful concern for people that is much deeper than any kind of passion or pity or concern that you or I could have. It's always used about that feeling that he has when he is about to heal or perform a mighty act to meet somebody's need or when he is teaching in a parable about people that have that same kind of feeling. You see, what drove his sight when he looked at them was his compassion. He saw with his eyes, but he saw with more than his eyes. He saw with his what? He saw with his heart. From in his innermost being, that is what the word means. He he expressed the Father's compassion for children. As the Father looks on his children, Jesus, God incarnate, looks upon them as God's children, as we should. That's the way we ought to look at people children in need. You see, he saw with his father's eyes. And we know from Psalm 136, when it speaks about that same kind of mercy in the Old Testament, God's mercy is what? In the great Hallel Psalm 136, 26 times it says that God's mercy is what? It is forever. It's everlasting. It's enduring. It's It's permanent. God loves us with that kind of mercy. He loves us so much, I think you know the next verse I'm going to go to. For God so loved the world that he gave, not just sent, gave over, surrendered his son who died on the cross so that whosoever believes in his son should not die, should not end up in an eternal death, but will have everlasting life. That's how much he loved every one of those people in the crowd that Jesus was looking at. So you see, he not only saw with his heart, he saw with his father's eyes. Jesus Christ had the DNA of the father, and he had that kind of compassion. And he looked upon them, and they were distressed. It really means to be faint-hearted, almost dissolved into a puddle of distress, exhausted. The word really literally means to be flayed, to be skinned. Metaphorically today, what we would say is they were worried. They were worried, they were harassed, they were oppressed, and they were depressed. You know, there are several parallel verses that use this word about the distress of the people. In one of those, it's when he's about to feed the 5,000. And it sounds very much like what he's saying here at the end of chapter 9. He looks upon the people and he has compassion for them because they are sheep without a shepherd. And then, when he is about to feed the 4,000, he looks upon them because he has compassion because they look like they would faint on the way when they return home if he doesn't feed them. And there's the word, you see. They are faint hearted, they're depressed. They've been wearied by illness and sickness, they've been wearied by the worries of this life daily bread, provision, protection, hunger, and poverty. They have been wearied because of the burdens that the Pharisees put on them. They have been wearied by the taxes that the high priests have put on them. And these are God's sheep. (laughs) And he looks upon the sheep. And he looks at the shepherds that have been guiding them, the priests, the princes. And they, in fact, have flayed the sheep. They have skint the sheep. They have fleeced the sheep. And they are worn out. They're burdened. Not only that, they're spiritual oppression. Oppressed by spiritual forces. We know this because later when Peter talks to Cornelius, and he shares the gospel with Cornelius in Acts the 10th chapter, he explicitly says this is what's happening when Jesus stands before the crowd. He says, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So there was spiritual oppression that was going on here. Folks, today in this land, we have people that are hungry and thirsty. There are people that are in need. There are people that are depressed. There are people that are worried, bothered all around us, and many, many people that are spiritually oppressed. Jesus wants to reach us to reach them. They were dispirited. That means to be thrown down, to be downcast, struck and downcast so that you can't get up. Not just depressed, but almost immobilized. You know, when you look at these two together, the, the fact that they were distressed, that is, smitten and, and, and scattered, dissolved, and then they were depressed, it reminds us of sheep, doesn't it? You know, sheep, can be worried by dogs. That's the phrase they use in England. Uh, Worrying sheep is not just going out and causing them concern, it's when dogs chase them. And they get worried, and what happens? Often when that happens then, they go into a state of shock, almost paralyzed, and they can die within hours. Joe Bean was telling me about a cow that uh, got trapped in uh, in the tank probably chased by coyotes there. And they they got the cow out of the tank. And for several days, the cow survived. But Joe said, that cow is not going to make it. Victor told me this the other day. For he has never had a cow that got in the tank and they pulled out that has ever survived. There's just something about it. They become depressed. They fall to the ground and they just don't get back up. You see, this is the way the people work. They had been beaten down and worried and almost paralyzed by spiritual oppression. And in America today, there are many, many people that suffer that same kind of oppression and depression. 18% of Americans today suffer some kind of depression. There is a reason, folks, that we have a minister for counseling here at Gambrel Street Baptist Church. There is a great, great need for counseling people to help them with this depression. Major depression, statistics tell us that today, major depression is striking at this moment, 21 million Americans, 8% of the population. And it's even worse with youth. It's double that with the youth, 15%. 29% of Americans say that at some time or another in their life, they have suffered some kind of depression. That's what we're talking about here, folks. People in that state all around us. And there's such a thing as spiritual suppression that goes beyond this depression. The negative news that we have all around us. The culture wars in which this nation is engaged. The growing paganism around us. And it is nothing less than that, friends. We're being swept over by a wave of paganism in the 21st century, not unlike that in which Jesus ministered in the first century. And when you put all of that together, it's very easy for Christians to look out there and say, you know, I give up, to become depressed, to become oppressed by that because it seems like the gospel has no chance of winning spiritual oppression, like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep need shepherds. They don't know how to forage for themselves. Sheep, sheep, or if you want to say sheeps, okay, sheep are pretty dumb animals, you know they're they're aimless they need shepherds to guide them to green fields they need shepherds to take them to still waters they cannot protect themselves against natural hazards and certainly against predators and god is concerned for his sheep he has a plan you know when moses was about to die he sent then joshua along in numbers it says and it was for this reason he had a transition plan And every generation of God's church today needs to have a transition plan. The leaders of today will not be the leaders 20 years from now and 40 years from now. One of the things that we must do, friends, is we must call out new leaders for the next generation. And that's what he did with Joshua. It says that he sent Joshua so that the people would not be without a shepherd. And by the time you come to Ezekiel, the 34th chapter, he has given them shepherds in the form of kings and he's given them shepherd in the form of priests and God chastises and rebukes them because he says, you're nothing but false shepherds. You've scattered the sheep. You've oppressed the sheep. You've fleeced the sheep. And he says, I'm going to change it. I'm going to change that. I'm going to send one who is a true shepherd. And Ezekiel, the 34th chapter, he says this, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and and I will deliver them. I'll deliver them all from the places which they have been scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. In this passage, we see the promise that, that God will send a shepherd who will gather the scattered sheep, who will feed them in green pastures, who will lead them to still waters, and who will bind the brokenhearted, who will strengthen the weak, and who will renew them with rest. And of course, we know who that shepherd is. It's Jesus Christ. You know, in this first point about God caring for you and me, God does indeed feel our pain. And he feels the pain of people all around us every day. And folks, like George Truett used to say, Whenever you meet a person, whoever you meet, every day along your path, you can guarantee that that person that you meet has some problem, has some trouble, has some issue that they're dealing with. And God cares for them. He sent his son, the compassionate shepherd, to fulfill the ideal of the 23rd Psalm. Prophesied in Micah where he was going to be born in Bethlehem, but it also prophesies that he is going to be the shepherd that is going to meet the needs that Ezekiel prophesied. And we know it was fulfilled because Jesus comes, and in John, the 10th chapter, one of the great I am passages, he says, I am the what? Well, I'm the door, but I'm also the good shepherd. And the definitive mark of the good shepherd is that the good shepherd is willing to do what? Willing to lay down his life for his sheep. And we know that he did that. You see, Jesus, when he looks upon the crowd that is dispirited and distressed, Jesus himself does not become dispirited. He's besieged by thousands every day. You know, it says he looks upon the people in the New American Standard Version. Actually, that word aklos means crowd. It means multitude. He was being besieged by thousands. He, and it, it's going to be soon that he feeds 5,000 and another 4,000. So every day he had constant pleas by those that needed healing, that needed feeding, that needed protection, that needed demons cast out from him. And yet Jesus never gave up. He, he, he got tired, but he never gave up, even when he was besieged by all these needs. Why? Because he had compassion. You see, his compassion was more than an attitude. His compassion led to action to meet those needs. And his solution was this. He was God in incarnate form. He was limited to one body. He couldn't be everywhere at one time, so he needed help. And he multiplied his ministry by calling others alongside him, as he does today in the church, to share in that ministry and to multiply his ministry. And so we see next then that God indeed says that the harvest is ready. Even now it's ready. It's plentiful. He said to his disciples, a harvest is plentiful, look out there. Very much like what he said to them as they're standing there near the Jacob's well and the, and the villagers are coming out of Sakkar with the, with the uh, Samaritan woman. The fields are wide in the harvest, but the workers are few. When I started preaching in Oklahoma back in 75, I went to churches in June and July out in the countryside. Now if you're from Oklahoma, you know what I'm about to say probably. There were about a third of the people in the church that were normally there in the spring and in the winter. Because why? What time was it? It was wheat harvest time. And where were all the men and where were half of the women? They were joining in the wheat harvest. They had to get the wheat harvest in before the storms came and before the wheat spoiled in the fields. The harvest was plentiful, and some of them, I remember some school teachers that were in some of these churches that weren't teaching during the summer, and they would join the harvest then, and they would follow it north for the next three months and harvest wheat for three months. You see, the harvest was plentiful, but when I looked out in the church, the workers were what? Few. We have empty places in this sanctuary for harvesters. The harvest is plenty, folks. We need harvesters. And that is the case with most churches in America today. The key question, I think, here is is, it, is, is there really still a harvest? Or has it withered? Look at Western Europe. Only 10% of the people in Western Europe attend church weekly. So we look at America, and you, made, you heard me make the reference to there have been seven ways of revival in America in the past, and we want to assume then there will be another revival coming. There's a word of warning here. There comes a point, folks, when God writes Ichabod over a nation. Just because we have had revival after revival after revival after revival after revival after revival after revival in this nation. And I'm not talking about Asbury. I'm not talking about, Brown, about Brownwood, okay? I'm talking about widespread revivals just because it has happened before does not guarantee that it will happen again yet there's enough time because until the lord comes there is still time to pray for the harvest and for workers you see he is patient to us second peter tells us because he doesn't want any to perish but he wants all to come to repentance and he urges us to for pray for workers in the harvest field and for the harvest. There are hints, folks, even in our desperate times, that there may, in fact, be a harvest to be reaped. Even in these desperate times today, there are a lot of folks that say, well, I'm not religious anymore, but you know what? More and more folks are saying they're spiritual. Now, that's not enough, but that's encouraging. 27% 27 of the people in this nation in a survey, recent survey said, I'm not religious, but I'm I'm spiritual. So you see, there is a toehold there. Even in our culture wars, there's some signs that, as negative as they are, that there's some positive hope. Woke culture. Woke culture, folks, is about awakening. And we know the answer to awakening. We know what the awakening should be. Awake, sleeper. Get out into the harvest field. Awake, sleeper. The Lord is coming. When you look at the call for social justice today, we know that only God can deliver that kind of justice that people yearn for. for. When you hear people talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we know that the answer is in Scripture. It is that everyone is created in the image of God, and God loves every single person that He has created. And Christ looked at every one of those needy faces in the crowd and saw them with human dignity. When you look at postmodernity, one of the good things about postmodernity is it doesn't just question some things, it questions everything. It questions the modernity's pride that we can answer all the solutions. And we know the scripture says the same thing. We cannot, only God can. In this postmodern world, there are more people that are seeking certainty than ever before. Millennials, they're the hardest nut to crack. Many of them are not coming to church anymore, folks. But guess what? The millennials are reaching age 40 and 41. And you know what happens? They have families, and they have children, and I'm telling you, in the future, in the next 10 years, the millennials are going to be seeking for certainty, and they're going to be seeking things for their family. And their mindset will begin to change. There is hope. The harvest is plentiful. Survey of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Center gives us some hope. Religious people in this world, in fact. There is religious growth in this world. When they did a survey around the world of people that consider themselves religious, and then they compared them with the non-religious and the atheist, the rate of religious growth is two and a half times that of non-religious, and it is seven times the growth of atheists. Christian rate growth is the fastest, believe it or not. Ninety-two percent of that growth is being found in Christian communities. There's hope in the southern globe, and by the southern, I'm talking about the southern hemisphere, and then Africa and, and southern Asia. That is where Christianity is growing the fastest, and you know that. Over a billion Christians in those areas, and yet in the old areas, the northern areas of North America and the continent of Europe, it's less than a billion one of the hopes there, folks, is this is a land of opportunity. It's a land of immigration. And some of those folks are, are immigrating back to America, and they're beginning to remissionize America. There's hope. More people today that are not Christians know more Christians than 100 years ago. In, ni- in 1900, a small group of people around the globe knew Christians. But today, five times as many know somebody who's Christian. The non-evangelized world is shrinking. Christians have been working over this for centuries. It's been cut in half since 1900. 54.3% of the world was not evangelized in 1900. Now it's down to 28%. Scripture is being published more prolifically today than even 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there were 54 million copies of Scripture printed. And now it's almost 100 million. There is hope, folks. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus had few. When he walks along the Sea of Galilee, how many disciples did he have? Zip. And then he looks at James and John and Peter and Andrew. He's got four. And Philip and Nathaniel six. And then Matthew, seven. So by the time we come to this passage, we know that there were more, but we only have seven that are identified. Wow. Even Jesus had to seek harvesters. Hmm. You see, many came to him for bread, but not for the bread that lasts, and they abandoned him. Many were not willing to pay the price like the rich young ruler. So Jesus also, when I say struggled, maybe that's a little bit strong, but to build a circle of disciples. There was a shortage. There's a worker shortage in America today. Look at the drop in membership in the houses of worship. You know, I said it about six months ago. For the first time in American history, the Gallup poll of 2021 said that worship attendance had dropped beneath 50% in this nation. And the main drop is amongst millennials. Only 36% of millennials attend worship regularly, and Gen Z is lower than that. The next generation, it's down to 30%. There's a drop in attendance. 30% of Americans say that they worship regularly that is once once a month in church and since the pandemic is the pandemic over we still have people getting COVID but you know what I'm talking about since about 2021 20 percent of the people in America say that they don't attend as much as they used to churches are closing and they're declining in 2019 there were 4,500 churches that closed and only 3,000 that opened That's a negative sum, folks. Attendance, average attendance in America at churches over the past 20 years has dropped from an average of 137 down to 65. So you look at these signs and they're very negative. There's a drop in seminary graduates and a commitment to going into church ministry. 40% of the graduates of seminaries today, ATS statistics tell us, plan to go into church ministry. 40% plan to go somewhere else. There's a drop in trained ministers. 85% of seminary graduates will not be in the ministry in five years. 90% of them that stay will not stay until retirement. Folks, the workers are few, and it looks desperate. When you look at Gamble Street Baptist Church, I've been here 10 years as pastor, and in 10 years we have had 50 funerals. That fills up this center section seven rows back. You see this gap right here, folks? That represents the losses that we have had to death. That is normal. People age and they die. Our membership in this church, the average age, what do you think the average age of the membership is? 62. And 45% of this congregation is retirement age or older. How many are millennials? 8% which interestingly enough is about the same size as our over 90 population, which is 7%. Folks, the point is this has affected us as well. Attendance, when you look around today, it's 25% below what it was before COVID. And we have turnover. We've had 30 staff members since I have become pastor here and 18 of them have left. Turnover, that's almost two a year. The good news about that, folks, is there is good news. The third objective of this congregation is to do what? It is to train leaders to serve Christ. And they do what? They go out. Just like the Garvins are going to go Oregon Trail, and they're going to be planting a church. That's a good thing. But come August, guess what? That whole pew is going to be empty. No, it's not, folks, because we're going to pray that somebody comes in and fills those places. Since I've been here, 15 ministers that have either been on staff or have been seminary students have left to pastor churches or plant churches, and three of them are in this metroplex area. That's the good news. We're doing what, friends? One of our, not only goals, but it's part of our DNA, is we train people to send them out, not just to hold on to them. But when we do that, we need to pray to the Lord that He does what? That He sends others in their place the harvest is plenteous but the workers are few last point God will indeed he promises to send workers it says beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest how do I know that he's going to send them because what did we say before the pastoral prayer if we pray believing that we have received it it will be given us if we pray for what we know the Lord wants to do He'll do it. Not because we command him to do it, but because he's telling us to pray for it, and he wants to give it. So if we pray believing that what he says here in Matthew 9, 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest, he will answer it. And this isn't just praying as normal, folks. It's not just... And and it's important that we come together and we present our prayers and petitions and worship. That's one word for prayer in the New Testament. It's important that we express our wishes to God. That's another word for... Praying in the New Testament. It's important that we seek God's encouragement. That's another word. It's important that we inquire of God and we ask of God to answer us. But folks, the word that he uses here, the King James word is beseech. You know what the modern word is? Beg. Get down on your knees and beg. Well, you see what, folks, that does? It attacks our pride. You see... We don't want to admit that we have to beg. We're a proud church. We have a great and rich heritage. Why should we have to beg for anything? And I'm not talking about just Gamble. I'm talking about most churches in this nation. They're not willing to come to the altar of God and to beg to implore God to hear our prayer. Like the man with leprosy, he didn't just come up to Jesus and say, "Hey, you know, if you got time, would you touch me?" He begged the Lord to heal him. Legion filled with thousands of demons. He didn't just say, "Lord, leave me alone." He begged the Lord not to t- to torture him. Churches in America today need to come to the altar of God and to beg Him to send workers. There's nothing wrong with admitting that we're in desperate straits and acknowledging that only a miraculous work by the hand of God can solve the problem. Prayer is the solution. When we're downcast, when we're depressed, when we look at empty pews, the challenge isn't to come up with a new plan and program, the challenge is to pray. This is what Jesus did. He didn't do anything. He didn't command his disciples to do anything that he didn't do. What did he do? If you look at Luke's gospel, right before he sends out, he calls the 12, what does he do? It says there's a gap between chapter 9 and chapter 10 in Matthew. He prayed all night long. He prayed all night long, and then he assigned the 12. And you know he didn't stop praying, because when you go from Luke the 9th chapter to Luke the 10th chapter, when he sends out, he doesn't send out 12 there. He sends out how many? Seventy. You see, the father heard his prayer and he sent workers into the field. He didn't pray for more rabbis. He didn't pray for more synagogue members. He didn't pray for more temple priests. He didn't pray to fill pews. He prayed for workers who would be doers with compassion that would see with the eyes of the father and to send out with an irresistible force compelled and motivated by the father to win the lost. Just as Jesus has been sent he sent out his disciples so you see he had been sent out and he calls them to be sent out so let me m- apply this in conclusion jesus invites you and me jesus invites us to join him in the sharing and multiplying of his ministry what he's calling us to do over the next few months is very simple pray pray believing Pray believing and look at the people around us that you see this next week with the Father's eyes and Jesus' compassion, ready to act, ready to share with them, ready to gather, ready to feed, ready to water, ready ready to bind the, the weak and to strengthen them and to renew those that are distressed and dispirited. He wants Gamble Street Church to take heed what he says to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. You see, the the purpose of this, folks, is not to fill pews. The purpose of this is God has things for us to do this next year, compelling things for us to do as a church, and he wants to send workers to accomplish it. So what he wants us to do, if we have not before, is to have a mindset of what? Giving and not receiving. If we receive workers, and we will, because we will pray for it, believing It is because we're going to give them. Be not dismayed at the enormity of the task. The Father knows the need, and if we pray for it, He'll provide it. Secondly, very quickly, for what should we pray? I think we should pray for new members. New members. New members who know how to disciple and who know how to give and who know how to uh, share the gospel. We need to pray for those of us that are already here that we will be motivated to go into the field. We need to pray not just for soul winners. We need to pray for folks that are committed to discipling, disciple makers. We'll come to that when we come to Matthew 28. We need to pray for leaders, leaders that will mentor and teach others how to be soul winners and how they how to go into the harvest. And folks, we need to pray for new converts. We need to pray that this baptistry will not stay dry. Not just because we're worried about baptismal numbers but we need to pray for those that commit themselves to follow Jesus Christ and to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we need to pray specifically for people with certain spiritual gifts. The next two weeks, I've asked you to focus on the gifts of evangelism, that is faith, evangelism, and apostleship. And then we're going to shift after two weeks, and we're going to look at gifts of giving and helping. And for the next 10 weeks, every two weeks, there's going to be an emphasis, but don't give up on faith and evangelism after this two weeks. Our spiritual legacy, folks, is important. You see, what we're doing as we do this over the next six months is not just for us. It's for the future of his kingdom here in this part of Fort Worth. Jesus selected 12 disciples... Because he planned to go home. And he did. And he had to have somebody to sustain that ministry. I'm 72 years old. I don't know when the time's going to come. But 30 or 40 years, certainly from now, I'm not going to be here. Okay? You know, where I'm, you know where I plan to be? I hope where you plan to be. In the Father's house. Some of you are going to leave before I do, but many of you are going to leave after I do. Clay, what we're doing is about your generation and the next generation. I'm not going to be here forever. Clyde's not going to be here forever. Virginia's not going to be here forever. You see, this is about sustainable ministry in the kingdom what we're praying for over the next 6 months is a turning point in the life of this church but not just because we've got empty pews. We're 100 and what? 8 years old in November. Gamble Street is not guaranteed that it'll turn 109. Unless we pray that he sends workers. You see the future is in his hands. We're not guaranteed that we'll be here 20 years from now just because we've been here 108 years. It's about the future. Don't be intimidated. Don't have fear. There's no option for failure. You see, Jesus was not driven by expectations of others, he wasn't driven by the fear of failure, he wasn't driven by looking at empty pews. He was driven by, and what's the point, folks? He was driven by compassion compassion and the need to produce, uh, to join in the harvest. As Jesus prayed about the harvest, he knew this. He wasn't the one that produced the harvest. It was the Father. Look at at what that passage says as we close. What does it say at the end? That we pray, we beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers into what? The field of his harvest. You see, he's preparing out there right now. He's preparing the harvest and he wants us to go out there And he is the one that is going to bring the yield and the produce and the fruit. He already knows it. He just wants us to join him. Stay focused, folks, over the next six months and beyond on prayer. I'm going to say something a little controversial. I usually do. The Lord isn't so concerned about how vociferous we are about inerrancy. The Lord is not so concerned about how much we debate about women in ministry. The Lord is not so concerned about whether you're Calvinistic or, or Arminian. The Lord is not so concerned about identity politics. The Lord is not so concerned about whether one is labeled liberal or conservative. The Lord is mostly concerned compassionately about the lost, and he wants us to reach them. It is time for us as a denomination, and it's a time for us as a nation to stop being divided over these things. He wants us to stay focused, and the focus must be on What? Workers going into the harvest field and to do something about it. Pray believing that is action. It's the most important kind of action. It's spiritual action. Believe that what you pray he will deliver because it's his will. And then respond to the call. One thing that we have not been very good at in the last few years is calling out people. I don't mean calling out to reprimand. I mean what? calling out to service. We need to call people into the field, and we need to call people into the vocational field. There's some of you that may be feeling that call. Respond. Pray believing and respond. But whether or not you are, he calls each one of us to go into the harvest field. So would you join me over the next six months to do these two things? Very simple. Pray. And what? What's the other thing? Believe. Pray and believe. And he will answer that prayer. And he will send the workers. And we will begin to see the reaping of the harvest unlike we have seen it in a long time in this nation. Join me in prayer. Fathers, we hear your call. It's not first a call to do It's a call to be with you and a call to be in communication and communion with you and a call to pray, to discern your will. And as you place on our heart the kind of response that you want to give back to you, give us eager feet and hands to respond with a zeal and an excitement and an anticipation knowing that you are going to answer our prayer and you are going to bring in your harvest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we respond to God's invitation.